ride with me in my foul life. Can you believe it's already been a year? A year since we did the first ever Wildfowl Magazine annual gear issue podcast series. And here we are, round two. We've talked about how this is kind of like the Bible of duck hunters, goose hunters, waterfowl hunters, conservationists, duck lodges. You walk in, you can't take that lodge or that operation serious, in my opinion, if they don't have a bunch of wildfowls on the coffee table, in the bathroom basket where Skip Knowles does most of his reading. Speaking of Skip Knowles, he's back. Ladies and gentlemen, our co-host of the 2021 Wildfowl Magazine Annual Gear Issue Podcast Series, Skip Knowles. What's up, brother? Not too much and not enough, man. You know, I actually do a lot of editing in that room as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's your lucky day, Chad, man. I got a I got a, a gnarly chest cold and I could barely talk, so you're gonna have to carry me. You need but, to start you need to start taking medications and stuff, man. You're approaching 60 now. <laughs> I don't feel a day over 40. Tony, don't laugh so hard at that. Don't <laughs> encourage him. He just said the name <laughs> of our other guest. It's uh He's been here quite a bit lately on the podcast. We're always fortunate to have him because I tell you, he's one. He's got to be the busiest guy in waterfowl hunting because he farms and he gets probably the leading operation in the country ready for, if not thousands. I don't. I'm going to have Tony talk about how many guests come through Habitat Flats a year, but I'm going to say it's in the thousands, including snow goose season. Tony Vanamore, Habitat Flats. How are you, my brother? Man, I'm good. Good to be back. Can't believe it's been a year already since we did this. I know. And it's like, you know, the, the introduction to the podcast series is always important to me, Tony Vandemore, because of, I, I honestly think that this this magazine kind of tells everybody like, hey, it's time to shake the dust off the decoys. Your dog should already be getting in shape. Boat's got to be getting ready. The call's got to be tuned up. You agree? Like, that's kind of like that, like that coming of age of like the new season is upon us. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that always, it's always one of the highlights of summer, you know, it's, it shows that summer's on its way out. <laughs> and summer to you on the way out. I know that you enjoy time in Florida at the beach. I know that you enjoy time with your kids in the water. Family time is important, but at this time of the year, like the dog days of summer in August, Tony Vandemore, do you start cussing the heat and praying for those fall crisp days? Guarantee it. Absolutely. It was pretty cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, like even, even my wife, Kate and the girls, like we love summer till about 4th of July, but I'm really blessed that they love fall and winter as much as I do. Like we're all kind of, we don't go to the lake as much in July and August. I mean, we're kind of over it. We're, we're ready for, ready for cooler temperatures. Skip, do, skip. Do you, oh, sorry about that. Skip. Go ahead. If I can interject. I remember last year, Tony, brought up a really great point about how <laughs> writers used to write about the off season, what you're going to do in the off season, how you're going to you know, work on your decoys, work on your dog and do all this great stuff. But Tony said it. I remember last year when we had a podcast with him, he talked about how they're, we used to line everything up and get everything ready. And we just can't wait for the season, all the stuff we're going to do. And we're going to patch that boat and train that dog and fix those decoys and make a big rig. He goes, and now it's just like the season's here, man. It's like, oh gosh, where are my calls? What are we gonna do? There isn't the off season's over so quick anymore. I, I just, it's kind of difficult to say why, but 
I guess we're all just so busy, but I remember him saying that last year and here we are again. I mean, I think honkers open up here in the Dakotas in a couple of weeks and yeah. And then, and then early teal. And I know Tony, you've been posting some stuff on some early blue wing or early teal action. Are you, are you excited for it? Is it looking like it could be a good year for it? I mean, man, I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about the hatch. I mean, it's been pretty dry up North and whatnot, but uh, it's kind of cool. You know, we always, well, one of the guys saw a teal last week and it was like 110 heat indexes last week, just absolutely miserable. And we had a front come in over the weekend. It was 59 degrees this morning and I was out checking the farms and I personally saw my first two bunches of blue wings this morning. So really wow. cool. Wow. That's, is that early? No. I mean, we usually see them. We'll see the very first ones like the end of July, first part of August. And I mean, I'm not a biologist, but from what I've been told, you know, those are the adult males. They finish breeding, they get the flight feathers and they roll. I mean, the ones we see now, we don't have any chance of seeing during teal season. I mean, they're going to be, hell, they'll be in Mexico by the time we open up. I've heard that as well, Tony, that those are the old boys and mature drakes here. Your uh, birds are at least two or three years old, yeah. That they yeah, it's still really cool to see, though. They'll be in Mexico in uh, mid-August sometimes, uh, from what I hear. Yep. And we we all know, see them. I know cinnamons get it. They just they get out, yeah. So, Skip, as, as the editor-in-chief, as the guy that you have an unbelievable crew, let's not forget to mention how awesome the crew at OSG is and and – what the media team is doing with all of their publications of gun dog, Peterson's hunting wildfowls, my favorite um, for obvious reasons, but I would imagine in your shoes skip that when you see this come off the press, when it goes from digital form, I still like to hold things. I'm a touch guy. I like to put this magazine in my hands. I like to, I really don't go online and read a lot of online magazines and that's self-admitting. Hopefully I don't get shot down for that because um, you know, that's the way the world is moving. But I love the fact that we still get to touch this skip when it comes off, you answer first. Do you have like this joy of not as much as your firstborn but like pretty excited and tony when you get this in your hands do you get that feeling of like oh gosh man like you get you just can't wait to go through it skip you first absolutely we uh have a great staff now there was a period i was flying solo and we we're in between um staff members and we got nathan rasford and uh, chris ingram our digital editor on board nathan rasford's our new associate editor he started about a year ago <laughs> so um it's a giving of birth sort of thing for sure. And uh, once the cover shots are decided, once the contents are all decided, then it's just go like heck to um, get it all in the door. And yeah, it's a, it's a big stressful thing. We don't have a big staff. We just, the passion drives the thing for sure, you know? And uh, it's so exciting when it's done for, we, we, we just love it. Can't wait to get it in our hands. The, when, when we have to wait until we get that first one on our doorstep or in the mailbox, you know, that loud wonk of the box of magazines landing. It's a lot of anticipation, a little bit of, little bit of anxiety. Did we get it right? Did we get it right? Everyone's paying attention. I just had a magazine reader write me today talking about how he had every issue of Wildfowl ever done. And he noticed when we had a volume number wrong back in 1988 or something, uh, you know, on the spine of the magazine and, and he had recorded every single thing and put it all in here. So there's some people with different attention spans 
than a than average that, that really pay close attention to every detail. So it's a bit nerve wracking, but yes, sir, it's gigantic relief and a source of pride. And we have kick ass stories in it, like this duck crazy piece that I just love from Tom Keir. It's a uh, yeah, it's really exciting. Tony, we, we're not in it to get rich. That's for sure, Chad. <laughs> ah, none of us are. Uh, but Tony, do you get that feeling? I mean, are you reading it? You looking at the new ads? Are you seeing who's in the game? Who's new to the game? What what trailblazers are still in here you know kicking it and being a part of the 2021 gear issue how fired up do you get tony yeah man it's it's really cool to get that i mean you know skip talked about that magazine that had the uh oh the the wrong number on or whatever i I can about bet i've probably seen it i mean growing up my uncle i spent a lot of time with him hunted a lot and all that and he had boxes upon boxes and boxes of magazines. I mean, all the wildfire, all, all of everything. And, and I can remember growing up as a kid, I mean, I used to rifle through all of them and look for the wildfire ones because they always had the duck and goose. I mean, there wasn't a lot of that stuff back then. I mean, you had your outdoor lives and field and streams and that stuff, but you didn't get a lot of just straight duck and goose magazines. You know what I mean? And Tony, it was cool back does- then. It's still cool. How nostalgic are you, Vandemore? Do do you wish you would have kept them? Did you keep them? And like I I listened to that and been like, man, I wish I had my dad's nineteen eighty six George Dickel Merle Haggard jacket, right? Like he wore it all the time, and then when he passed away, I have no idea where it went. He had so many of these magazines laying around of hunting back in the day. Are you a? Is that considered hoarding? Or would you have pride in keeping that kind of stuff? And did you get to keep any of it for your lodges? Well, I think, I don't know. It, it definitely wouldn't be hoarding. I mean, uh, luckily my uncle still got them all, so I can still look at them. But, you know, we've got, like, just on nostalgia, I mean, a lot of old prints and stuff from back in the day we've got in our lodges, like my grandfather's club maps and stuff like that. I mean, I think I'm – very nostalgic. I mean, I still look through all my photo albums from, you know, 35 years ago and still love seeing those old pictures and good times with some of those people aren't here anymore, which really sucks. But I mean, that's, that's why we do that. I mean, at least that's why I always took pictures when I was a kid so I can continue to look at them in magazines and stuff in the same way. I'm glad you said that, Tony V. And Skip, I've made a commitment. I was bragging to some friends this last week in that I'm taking all, I think, 6,700 photos. Obviously, not all of them are going to make it. But I'm, I've been sending 500 at a time to a printing service. And I'm getting them printed in 4 by 6 vertical and horizontals. And I'm putting together my mom-style photo albums that my mom took so much pride. You know, one time we had a wildfire that got really close where we had to be evacuated. The only thing my mom cared about saving it besides us was her photo albums and all of the framed pictures around the house on the walls like parents used to do so much and took so much pride in it. Skip, um, you're, you're from my generation. Tony's a little bit younger than us. But, Skip, are you are you a – a nostalgia guy too that does this or am i giving you an idea of maybe it's time to start printing photos again and building these photo albums because since i've been doing it everybody that comes to my house picks them up and doesn't put them down you know what well i really enjoyed that um all through the 90s growing up and becoming an editor and i love these photo albums full of big photos of giant king salmon and you know maybe that white tail that i thought was so big before i realized how big they can get 
killed in Washington and all these photos with friends and family and my, my kids when they're younger. And Tony's been in the magazine for a long, long time. We became friends, I think a decade ago. Um, and I walked into his house. He built a new house, I think five years ago, me and my family swung by on our sojourn through, uh, through Missouri and on Tony's wall, he had this brilliant piece written by his brilliant wife about, called The Waterfowler's Wife, a comical, hilarious section about what it's like dealing with a neurotic, super type A, successful, maybe the most successful, you know, waterfowl guide on earth. And, and uh, she, she, it was a hilarious story. She wrote about how it's always too windy, not windy enough, too cold, too warm, and nothing is ever right, according to Tony, when he goes to bed. <laughs> and, uh, and he's only happy when it's absolutely snowing like crazy. And I've been at his place when we woke up, went to bed at a, in a nice, nice climate, you know, 60, 50 degrees or something like that. Wake up to just a screeching blizzard. And he's walking around just so damn happy at 4 a.m. Um, but he, he's got that on his wall, you know, that, that beautiful feature story. I don't know, Tony, do you have more than one of that now at this point? Yeah, I, man, there's all kinds of stuff in there. That one of that one that Kate wrote is definitely the best one. That's hilarious. I remember when that came out. We did a two-part series. Yeah, it's worth it's worth revisiting. But it's, sure. it's in a day that where I, I don't look at enough. We have so many photos on our phone. We take so many, you know, pictures after the hunt, before the hunt, family at the beach or whatever, a video at a concert. I don't really I don't really think people go back and relive them as much as we think we do. I know that some moms like do the digital frame to where they kind of alternate out, but just like going back to my comment about touch, I've just made, I've just made a commitment to it, man, because it's unreal to open these photo albums and see them because you know, when you go into your phone, you're going for a certain picture, you're frustrated as heck because you haven't taken the time to put them in folders. You can't find it. And you never go back and look at these pictures enough of what you did. I've seen pictures of my daughter when she was one year old on my phone. And I'm like, I got to have that printed on the wall. Right. And I do have pictures of my daughter on the wall, but I want them all in albums and everything to remember them. Cause I'm never going to remember them that much on my phone. And that's what this magazine means to me, guys. That's what, um, being able to put my hands on it and that touchy feely feeling and that, that, that sentimental feeling, I have a sentimental attachment to waterfowl season, just like both of you do. And we're going to open up, you know, this year with Tony Vandemore and, and the section on blinds. And the reason that I wanted to get Tony skip, um, what you and I discussed, who our guests were going to be and we and tony's always at the top of the list and what's cool about a guy like vandemore is that it wouldn't matter if it was you know a plucker or it wouldn't matter if it was a knife it wouldn't matter if it was a duck call or a goose call or a pair of binoculars for scouting like every single part of this book tony could speak on but the reason i chose blinds is because in his game skip Knowles, you have you're you're hunting with okay he's he's developed friendships over the years with most of his clients i would assume i pretty much know he has because of the kind of guy he is and his wife and his family and his operation and the macaulays and everybody but here's the deal you have to hide when you have that many eyeballs on you from above, you have to hide. No matter how good Tony has built his operation, the ducks are coming, the geese are coming through the migration, you still have to hide. That's why I wanted Vandemore on here because he is in ground blinds. He's in pop-up blinds. He's in pit blinds. He's in, you know, 
on the edge of the field, in the middle of the field. He puts up panel blinds. He builds his own structures on ponds. The guy knows concealment. And this is one of the most important parts of the game, in my opinion, because you do all of that work from the preparation, the farming, the scouting, everything. Everybody's got that anticipation, kid in the candy store, feeling skip knolls. And then all of a sudden you get out there in the morning and one guy is, is moon facing it, moon pieing it, pie facing it, whatever we call it. And that opportunity when 20 greenheads are on top of you, one of them sees you, they're out. You don't get that shot. So that's why I and, and, and Skip wanted to have you on, Tony, for blinds, because we know that you've seen it all and we know how much pride you take in concealment. Skip, does that make sense? 100%. Tony has been there and done that. I promise when he was a little kid hiding behind a log along a stream, hoping a duck wouldn't see him to his uh, masterful, ornate, you know, well-engineered boats and blinds and everything he's ever used. And you got to be hostile and mobile. Tony, here's, here, this, this will tell you all I need to know about Tony Vandemore. I uh, told him that I wanted to come do a TV show on snow goose hunting. And like anyone else I ever talked to about, hey, I'm going to bring my cameraman, World of Bread, or we're going to do this great TV show. They would bend over backwards and be so excited. I said, Tony, I'm bringing a bunch of guns and some cameraman. He goes, no, you're not. I'm like, what? Yes. Yeah, you're not. He goes, uh, I got paying clients, eight or 10 of them. They're not going to have their hunt ruined by the great glass eye of some cameraman. They're just too hard to hunt. Sorry, Skip. I don't need the glory. I don't need the, <laughs> the TV attention, anything. You can send those guns if you want, Skip. <laughs> <laughs> I started his 28 gauge addiction back then. But um, uh, yeah, he was like, no. <laughs> I was like, what? That one says no. He's like, yeah, um, no, you're welcome. Anytime, brother. Anytime. Come on, Skip. We can't get enough of you. Love to see a story. But yeah, you're not bringing a camera into my blinds because you can't hide them. <laughs> Go ahead, Tony. <laughs> yeah, we... I mean, there, there's some you can hide and, and some you can't. I mean, you, you know how that goes. Tony, let's start with, let's just start with your favorite. You've hunted it all. You've done it all. <laughs> Sometimes you hunt and there's not even a blind. You stand behind, beside a tree. You make blind. You shadow. There's a lot of things that go into concealment. Angle of the sun, clouds. Oh, it's a ducky day. It's storming. Well, no, I'd rather have blue skies like Tony and I have talked about so many times. Jimbo brought that to my attention probably 15 years ago. When I was one of those guys that, man, I love stormy days because we always would kill the geese in California and the rice check on stormy days. And then you get out to Arkansas and they cuss the clouds. So when it comes to concealment, Tony Vandemore, when it comes to this section in this magazine right here, it's called Blinds. What is your favorite way to hide, Tony? And don't say, please don't say whatever it takes. I'm just talking about, do you like being on your back in a laydown blind? Do you like more comfort in a panel blind? I know that different hunts call for different applications, but what's your all-around go-to favorite? Probably that probably goes into my, my hunting style. I mean, I prefer my favorite probably is greenheads and in the timber. So like, Stilt blinds are comfortable. You stand up, you can walk around, great concealment. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're comfortable. So stilt blinds would be more of like a, a structure that you bring in some two by fours and plywood and you build stilts up kind of like you would see in the South on a house that's waiting for a hurricane or a flood to stay out of the water, Mark. You're, you're up out of the water. You have a false floor in it and you have, then you take, tell me about the importance 
tell Skip and I the importance of natural surroundings, vegetation, and making it look like it's been there for years. I mean, the biggest thing for us is, I mean, we'll make our stilt bonds. We, we make them all ourselves and, uh, we make 16 footers that'll shoot six guys. And then they've got two foot dog boxes on each end. And then we make 24 footers. You know, we can have eight or nine guys in there comfortably with dog boxes on each end, but they all, I get a lot of people ask, you know, Hey, can you send me the plans for this? Can you, can you help me out on that? And it's kind of like, well, I mean, I would be happy to, but there's nothing on paper. I mean, it's all in my head. We've built so many of them. And every one of them is going to be just a little bit different based on that available cover. So if it's, you know, pretty short cover, real short trees or even out in grass, I mean, it's going to be a lot lower profile than if you've got, you know, big, tall timber behind you. Then you can build that thing tall. You can walk around in it. You can do whatever. But when it comes to concealment, probably the biggest thing that we do that I see a lot of other people's do and, and a lot of people that don't do it is a lot of people will go strip that blunt, strip that cover off there, you know, after the year, and then they'll start fresh next year. Where what we do, you know, we, we're brushing with pin oaks, um, which are really, really good cover, especially in the timber scenario. But uh, you just keep stuffing that stuff, stuffing it in there year after year. You're just stuffing it, adding to it. I mean, the cover might be it might come out four feet off the front of the blind. <laughs> it ends up just looking like a humongous, ginormous brush pile, but it doesn't have any edges. And the bigger it gets, the less afraid of it they are. Well, hmm. Skip, he said edges. Does this mean that ducks can pick out different angles or formations, per se, Tony Manamore? Like, if you can create something that grows circular or kind of takes that edge or that that what what educate me on what you mean by edges i mean more of a profile i guess a silhouette i mean if you go and i mean say you you take a drone or whatever and you you come into a duck hole with a drone you don't see a lot of hard edge boxy looking things i mean you've got angles and stuff just kind of going everywhere but there's not just very few things are just straight up and down and straight horizontal. You know what I mean? I mean, everything got a little, little curve or a little bend to it. That's uh, right. Your old buddy, uh, Chad, your old buddy, Terry Denman was talking about how they're just the horizontal lines that can create the roof edge of a blind. They don't exist in nature. I don't know if that's 1000% true. We do have horizontal falling logs in nature and there are some horizontal lines out there, but by and large, what Tony's saying, a blob is far superior to anything that has horizontal lines that are, that are obvious because they don't vertical lines, horizontal lines where they meet. I mean, trees are vertical, but you know, seeing a horizontal line and a vertical line meet, it's, it's no good. You know, you just want that blob. <laughs> hey, hey, Skip, think, have you, go, go ahead, Tony. Just think about like when you're deer hunting, I mean, you're just, you're glassing the woods you're not necessarily looking for movement. You're looking for that angle, that ear, that, mm -hmm. that something, you know, that one thing that's out of place. I mean, you're not necessarily looking for a whole deer standing out in the wide open. And if you look at it that way, so a duck's coming in, you got the best blind in the world. Everything's perfectly camouflaged, but somebody, somebody sticks their head out and looks real quick. 
it's that little flick of an ear, the flick of a tail, hmm. seeing somebody's face for a split second that will cue cue off anything. You know what I mean? Ducks, geese, deer, turkeys. Makes total yeah, sense. Kind of, Chad, you just have a great story in the September issue, um, Life Support Canada Geese, and you guys just, oh, such a wonderful feature story. Let me see if I, you might not even have a new issue yet, huh? I don't. Um, it's, it came out just beautifully, though. We Can I see the cover of it to see if I have it? Yeah, it's an awesome cover by Hunter Eckert. That's sick. Yeah. Who hasn't been there, huh? That's Guy putting cool. up. It's really cool. in the dark it's a unique cover for us i really love it but uh yeah your story is just terrific um but you guys kick some royal butt old school everyone's like you can't use layout lines as effectively in the middle of the field anymore and we have a feature story in that september issue i know we're supposed to be talking about august but we have a feature story in that issue about the use the modern use of layout lines and how it's changed and you can't just go out in the middle of the field anymore and do exactly what you want and expect the birds to land on you. But you guys did a heck of a job shooting Canada's and that story with from layout blinds. So I guess out West, they're still really relevant, right? What, what's your favorite sort of blind situation? Obviously you guys did real well on that one. I, I've always loved that. I, I, you know, setting up in a cornfield with a bunch of mojos out there, we all know how powerful it is when mallards, or come you know descend out of the a, a, just a big sunshine bluebird day but i think tricking canada geese and ground blinds is some of my favorite to get them to be that personal and that intimate with you um i i just love it i i love the vocalizations i love the just the whole idea that they will be i mean we're shooting those geese in that hunt you're referring to at eight yards and in you no know, big groups of big giant canada's older geese and and um I, I was going to talk to you guys about that is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tony, cause you're around a lot of guides. You're around a lot of hunters. I don't know if your hunters and clientele help out in the field and skip. I want you to think about this. Also, we all want to be that decoy guy. We want to set the spread. We want to, we want to get the, 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 geese to, we want to be able to have that mindset of like, Oh, they did it. Perfect. We got them because we looked real, but it seems to me that not a lot of guys or girls in our hunt groups like jump out of the truck all revved up to get the lay down blinds out and go to concealment and cut and brush with the farmer's permission, you know, making sure that we take care of the land first. But not a lot of people take that pride of that hide. It's always, I want to set the decoys. I want to do the calling. I want to work my dog. But the most important thing that we're missing besides the day before and knowing where the X is or getting in traffic situation is that hide, Tony Vandemore? I want you to speak on this first. Why is that? Is that does that sound familiar to you that nobody wants to jump out and be like, hey, I got the blinds and I'm gonna make sure that you guys can't see them by the time the sun comes up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's just tedious work more than anything. I mean, especially layout blinds, do them right. It takes it takes time. And it's it's not necessarily super active, I guess. For me, I like to, I personally love to do the decoys just like everybody else. I want to be sex. I want to have everything perfect on that front. But at the end of the day, you're probably right. We're probably looking at it wrong because you can get away with, you can kill birds with decoys being a little bit off, but you're not going to kill very many if your hide's off. What is the secret? You mentioned 
angles. You mentioned silhouettes. You mentioned lines. Fred Zink, a mutual friend of all of us on here, taught me the importance of shadows with laydown blinds back in the days, the importance of decoy placement within the blinds, around the blinds, looker style, active walker decoys, maybe in between to break them up. Some of the biggest flocks of geese I've ever seen decoyed into a ground blind situation have been through Tony's hunts. What is the secret, Tony? Can you get away with much or are you that guy that makes sure that Freddie was really anal. If the birds were out in front of the blinds, those decoys were going to be feeder decoys because that shows where the food source is. Those approaching geese are going to try to get as close to that as possible. What is the secret, Tony, to getting those ground blinds hit? Let's start with ground blinds because they're the first ones on the first page of the blind section of the 2021 Wildfowl Giant gear issue. What's the secret, Tony Vandemore, of hiding ground blinds? For me, it's always been... uh you know, take, taking that edge away. I mean, we used to, when we used to do it, we would have blinds, you know, five feet apart, 10 feet apart, whatever. But then you've got, each one's got its own profile. And then as we kept doing it, and a lot of it will depend on, are your geese coming low? Are they coming, they staying out front, they coming low, like, like big honkers. Or are they coming from a ways away, coming high, looking down on you, taking longer? <clears throat> but we've we've always had the best success doing instead of spreading them out where you're hiding more blinds and it's harder to communicate we basically put them door to door it's easier to communicate and now you're basically hiding one bigger blind so the key for us is always filling in in between the ground blinds filling it all in level full oh so, yeah and mounting it off the back off the front where basically you're just looking like a little bit of a rise in a field. There's no edge. There's no nothing. There's no individual blinds. There's no individual mounds out there. You're looking like a bigger, more even uh, little mound out there. And you don't have any edges. You don't have shadows. And you can, you know, still put decoys. We make taller stakes to put decoys in between the blinds to help break them up. But, but getting your cover Obviously, in the stubble straps is important, especially on the doors and on the boot bags, but filling it 100% in full in between the blinds. That's always been our our best. I love that. I freaking love the idea that it's almost just looks like a lev, like just kind of a levee formation out there. Can ducks and geese skip knolls? And all of your studies and articles and biologists that you've worked with and guides like Tony Vandemore and Habitat Flats depth perception tony's talking about creating a little bit of a natural mound in your decoy spread i assume that tony's going to say the taller stakes are so the geese don't the decoys don't disappear they can the geese in the air tell skip can they look down and say whoa that's not real there's no geese in the world that tall there's nothing that's going there that that's can they see debt do they have depth perception like a good baseball player that vandemore was at one time still probably is but a good baseball player has to have depth perception they got to be able to see that ball off the bat and be able to get to where it's going can a goose or duck see that skip and does that does what tony's saying ring the like does it bring like truth to what you your style of hunting out of a ground blind is more and more, um, as, I, as I mature as a waterfowler and I have more experiences in different states, um, I feel like the, the goal is to not have them look at you to begin with. So, like, we had a, a really killer um, snow goose hunt 
uh, here in March and just outside Stuttgart with Dirty Bird Outfitters. And we're testing a new Browning Maxis too. <laughs> and what they did, we didn't lay in the decoys. We laid 20, 30 yards off to the side off an edge. And just why would you put yourself in the decoys where all the birds are going to look straight at you? Because they're looking at the decoys. We got off to the side and we absolutely cleaned the sky. It was the weirdest hunt. You're going to read about it in this big December issue. But um, it was a strange hunt. And uh, you know how snow geese, Tony, it's not uncommon to see 10,000, 20,000 snow geese a day on a hunt, right, Chad? Um, but how many of them are ever even going to give you a second look? It's maybe one percent or something like that i'm losing my voice um this hunt we didn't have that many birds it felt like we missed a migration it was right after all that snow melted and that horrific ice storm that was in a uh, all over the south and this part of the mississippi flyway out in february and we just hid with dirty bird outfitters 20 hours off of the x deliberately and we had so many more birds than normal finish there weren't that many birds around we might only see 100 or 200 a day, but they all did it. It was so weird how they all came in and got shot, um, but we weren't in the decoys. And um, another hunt I was on in, in Alberta, the guy who experimented made a giant arrow-shaped pattern of snow geese, you know, straggling down the hill. Snow geese, snow geese, snow geese, decoys, probably a quarter mile worth of decoys. And then we just hit off to the side of the point, like 30 yards instead of in the decoys. Traditionally, we'd have been at the point of the arrow, right? where they're going to finish because you know how they hop each other and everything. And, and we were off to the side and absolutely caned them. So I'm thinking more and more just, I mean, I've had an outrageous time. You sent me on a hunt in Stuttgart once with Tyler Jordan and everyone, where we all got all in white and lay down right in the decoys with taller silhouettes all around us. And it was, I think we limited on specs for a group of 12 people in 35 minutes or something. It was, it was wildly successful. And we finished two flocks of snow geese too. So I'm just kind of back and forth about whether you want to be in the decoys or not. If you guys have any input there. Tony, would you ever do this to let your clients experience the, you know, the actual harvest part, or does this take away the intimacy of the hunt? Talk to me a little bit, Tony Vandemore on Skip's comments of hiding outside of the actual decoy spread. I think it all depends on uh on the situation. I mean, we do, we do exactly what Skip's talking about a lot, uh, especially down there hunting snows. Um, we're hunting a lot of A-frames where you're, you know, there's, there's wells and pivots and dikes and everything down there. I mean, there, there's big, big looking stuff in, in a lot of the fields. And, and when we're getting away with, with hunting with A-frames and stuff like that and staying out of the decoys, we're typically running, smaller decoys so it's smaller decoy spreads so it's a little bit dependent on what we can get away with decoy wise um i mean you know it's muddy down there and a lot of times you can't pack in a thousand full bodies or whatever but you can have a hell of a hunt with 300 of them but 300 of them isn't hardly enough to to be able to hide seven or eight guys laying in them so in those situations we like to get outside the decoys like like skip was talking about tony let me interrupt real quick chat sorry i really want to i really want to learn something here today and tony when do you a-frames seem so obvious right chad they, they stick out they look like a bale of hay or something and and, and the, but they've come back and they're doing really well in lots of circumstances i used to just think only canadians could get away with them but we're doing well tony what's a good time or chad you i don't know if you're using them there in california a lot or not last year 
when uh when you guys go okay i can get away with it very comfortable sitting upright a frame blind today when is it going to work because we'd always rather hunt in them <laughs> yeah i mean it just every situation's different i mean obviously up in canada i mean heck that's all we use anymore a frames backed up to the cattails or whatever but we use them a heck of a lot in the states anymore too uh for everything for ducks canada's snows Hmm. it's it's correct me if you if i'm wrong on this tony but there's something about nebraska and kansas that the lessers will decoy to an edge like crazy with which blows my mind on this part i'm talking 30 foot trees in long rows of where these fields have come in there and been cut out kind of like you see in all agricultural land there you do that in colorado you're not getting them you got to be in a pit almost out with a good decoy spread. You go into Kansas with, let's say, 15, 20 dozen lesser decoys or honker decoys. They'll come, they'll decoy like five yards from that tree line. And we got six, seven, eight guns, nine guns in panel blinds with heaters and coolers and seats. And I mean, we're just in there like, it's like a day at the lake almost. Have you seen this, Tony? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, we've always look for ways to get out in the middle of the field. And that's, you know, why ground blinds were created. Um, but I think there's, you know, in certain situations, you can definitely get away with, with an A-frame and, and they work really well. Um, I think it's a little bit, a little bit more important on the, the decoy setting side um, as far as to get them in range because you're giving up a lot of times, you know, 10 to 15, 20 yards before you even get to the decoy spread. Um, but I do, I do like being off of them sometimes. I still prefer, especially from a guidance standpoint, laying in the decoys when you can get away with it because you're laying in the decoys, wind's behind you, those birds are coming right at you. And guys are shooting, and they're easy shots, second, third, fourth, fifth. Everything, you know, all those shots are a lot easier than when we're setting up, you know, down in Arkansas in an A-frame for a cross shoot. The birds are, you know, coming left to right and they're funneling in and they're 25, 30 yards in front of you and they're filling it up. And then if you get a big win, wow, they're, they're you know, first shot, they're blazing out of there super fast. I think I think guys shoot a lot better uh, when they're coming dead on than than the crossing game. Plus, it's a lot more right. it's a lot more vitals in the goose's body or the duck's body to get a, a clean, ethical, harvestable shot, right? No, but you, I mean, I've seen some massive rain outside of both, so mm -hmm. yeah, I have they're, they're both worth doing. They're worth having in the arsenal for sure. Let me ask you this <laughs> about panel blinds: Can you or have you ever, either one of you, because Skip lives in the land of cornfields, Tony lives in the land of cornfields, would you ever feel comfortable with a? a panel blind or an A-frame out in the middle of a cornfield, again, concealment, blinding it, natural vegetation, corn stalks. We, we all three can agree that mallards get pretty silly over mojos in a dry field, especially on a sunshiny day. We, have you done that? And have you had success in an A-frame out in the middle of just a cornfield concealed really good? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> no problem, huh? I mean, on the right days, obviously. Your sunshine field. Tony, you kind of said that like I gave up one of your secrets. Did we just pick apart Habitat Flats and how you guys are killing all these mallards? Are you doing it out of A-frames in the middle no. of the cornfield? <laughs> no, definitely some. I mean, absolutely. But, I mean, we've set, we've set big permanent snow goose sets with an A-frame 
in the middle of a cornfield. Really? really? Well, I mean, typically we're trying to use a, a crest of a hill or a terrace channel, just something to have it a little bit off. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it, it's worked fine. Tony's a water fowler though. I mean, I did a big editorial a couple of years back about, he's like, a lot of our guys don't even know we hunt, we hunt fields. People want the experience of hunting on the water for waterfowl with the dogs and the boats and everything that's, that, that is entailed with that. He hunts fields, but um, it's a second choice, right? Except for geese, right? Yeah. And I think kind of like Chad said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just, well, Chad, you've been to, you guys have both been to Canada a million times. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's easier up there. You know what I mean? Birds aren't pressured, so to speak. I mean, you get tough days everywhere, but, and then coming down in the States, it's like, well, okay, we can spend an hour more washing up eight layout blinds and making it perfect. Or you can take five minutes to set an A-frame and an extra 45 minutes putting out a bunch more decoys for honkers. And it seems to me like the, the extra decoys are kind of keeping eyes off the A-frame and we're having just as good a success when it comes to honkers. Um, not necessarily snows, but still still have pretty good success on the snow goose side. It's just every, every situation is different. I mean, there's a lot of things that work now and uh, have to adapt. And yeah, be able I, to do. that's what I was bringing up after I said that that statement on Kansas, Tony and Skip, I just wonder if it's the right geese. Cause there have been, don't get me wrong. There's been days to where they don't do it, but it just blows my mind that they trust that tree line and the ability to put a panel blind in there. It's just, there's so many different elements that go into that day, that certain day right there. Is it new birds coming into the area? How much pressure has been on the birds that are in the area? Are you going to get some flocks out of the subdivision that haven't seen a decoy forever? There, there's so many. And then you got the moon phase. You got, is there a, a good food source in the field? Are you running traffic? Are you on the X? What's the bird population in the area? There's so much that goes in to the little things, okay? The little things are what's going to keep the season alive for us. Paying attention to that detail. I had a <clears throat> I had a comment made today by an outfitter in California just on a conference call this morning that he sees a big difference in the attitude on the seventh week compared to the first week. You know, there's a lot of things that set in, especially exhaustion, right? These people get tired, but we start skipping the little things that could make that hunt on the seventh week just as memorable as the one on the first week. When you start thinking about a, a, a new way that you're hunting that I've seen through your social media, Tony and Skip, I know that you've been in pit blinds a lot, uh, whether it's a rice check in Arkansas or Louisiana or California. What are some things that as people start to develop land now and properties and outfitting service on private properties or they're farming for ducks per se, which is so awesome to me. I, I love the idea of what a goal in life to, to be able to get to the point to where you have your own little heaven on earth with a pit blind in a field and a stilt blind in the water over here and a trailer full of this if, in case the honkers cooperate. Pit blinds, Tony. One of the things that I've seen is the access to these. 
when you're walking down, you know, when you're walking down the levee and you're trying to get to it, or when you're driving into the field, what are some things that we don't think about that we need? We want to keep the vegetation around it and as natural as possible throughout the entire season. We don't want to be stomping on it. We don't want tire tracks around it from a drone again, like you brought up before, Vandemore. You can see all of this happening throughout the season. Talk to me a little bit about your idea of pit blinds, both of you, the comfort of them. I mean, I mean, you're underground. I mean, Colorado front range goose hunting. You can dig a a, a, a dirt in the hole and just make a makeshift pit blind in there. The geese have no idea you're there. You can't do it in every state. Check your local rule, laws and regulations with your DNR or Department of Wildlife. But Vandemore, you go first. How awesome are pit blinds and what are some things we need to think about? Man, they're they're great. I mean, they're uh, a great way to hide, obviously. I mean, they're comfortable, a lot more comfortable than a layout blind. I mean, layout blinds are comfortable for sure, but you're standing up to shoot and I think guys, most guys still are going to shoot a lot better when they're standing up, you know, either in an A-frame or in a pit blind or a stilt blind as opposed to a layout blind, at least for guys that don't do it a lot. You know what I mean? I mean, you guys that do it a lot, they're going to do it out of any, any one of those different styles of blinds. But pit blinds are nice because you can take something that has very, very little cover and, uh, and hide very easily. But you have to... You know, we're, we're always touching up grass, you know, on our pit blinds, especially like during duck season where we're hunting them, you know, for basically two months straight. I mean, once a week, we're putting more grass on. You're trying to go into the pit blind from the same, the same path every time and keeping everything else as good as you can. But touching up cover, uh, just like you would on, on anything else. I mean, if you use stuff, it's going to get pretty rough. So you got to make sure you, you just don't brush it before the season and call it good. You always got to be touching it up throughout the season. Yep. I got a good one. I got a good one on, on, on pits. I mean, they're just, there's, you're invisible, you know, if you do it right. And if you have the sliding lids that are covered and everything, that it's as lethal as it gets. You don't have that profile or any shadows or anything. You're just flat. We uh, you talked about um, the, the front range of Colorado, Chad, and how smart and overhunted those birds are. It's all those lessers that pile in there late in the season. We see so many guys can't finish them past 60 yards, shoot out them anyway, and you just made those geese unkillable, you know. It's just tough out there. We hunted one pit um, in like a 50-acre field. We call it Maggie's. It's by the New Belgian Brewery right there in Fort Collins. And no matter how spooky, it was on a flight line, running traffic, and no matter how spooky, and it was only like 50 acres, and how late in the season it was, we always killed 15 or 20 geese anytime we hunted it. And it's just because the pit blind was was uh, completely invisible. My, my favorite part of that story is we ordered some pizza on the last day, <laughs> like 10 a.m. We told the woman, we dropped a pin. Um, and told the delivery girl, just come out by the Fort Belgian brewery and stand on the edge of the field. And she's standing out there with a stack of five pizza boxes, like, what the heck? And we all start popping up out of the ground in the middle of the field, you know? It's like some sort of tactical, um, I don't know, complete hide. My chair is squeaking again. I just got told by Aaron Olger of Hodgdon's when he listened to your podcast from last year, Chad, with us that my chair was too squeaky. I just hosed it with Remington oil and it's still squeaking. I got to do something, but pit lines are just murderous, but you know, you're not portable. You're not hostile. My favorite hunt last year was a new year's day hunt with my family and the geese were landing um, somewhere on the Kansas border. You know me somewhere in Kansas. I don't talk about where I hunt, but uh, um, on the edge of a great big levee, a dike, like a 20 foot steep sort of dike you see in, 
okay, he's from Colorado. <laughs> and uh, we had these really aggressive, super strong young men, what I said, like 25-year-old Vandemores, right? They got shovels and they hacked out an L-shaped wedge right in the wall of the dike where we could all stand. And then we just covered in sagebrush and hid and put out, you know, a couple hundred honker decoys and it was brutal. They swung around in from the back with the sun in their eyes and just did it. We, we limited, I don't know, 10 guys in probably 35 minutes right on the edge of town. It was just amazing. But that was like an impromptu pit. I don't know. Most pits are big and, and fancy like the ones in, in Wildfowl. They're, they're an investment and they're not portable. But it's, not, it's worth remembering you can dig a pit and hunt. <laughs> That's what we used to do in Eastern Washington. I mean, but, the sand in your gun, and it's horrible. It's, it's not that nice, but you can you can be mobile with a pit as well. That was so fun, though. I like Just those. From, I like those kind of hunts. I've done that same thing you're talking about on. Oh yeah. You, you know, like on gravel pits to where you don't have really much of a shoreline and you're more on an edge and you kind of you just got to work. You got to adapt. You have to be versatile. You have to be unorthodox. You have to think outside the box sometimes. And you can you can make that sunny day with that wind at your back and sun and the goose the ducks or the geese the geese eyes to where. You might not have you might not have been able to get that cooperation if you didn't take that time, get there early enough and and be well thought out, you know, be able to be versatile like everything in life. Being able to adapt is so key, but I don't want to overlook a couple things, Tony Vandemore, when we start talking about pits and then all of the other blinds that we preface this conversation with safety let's 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 do gun safety last real quick tony because you're in the blind again with a lot of guys that you're not hunting with every day they might be in and out in three days they might bring a new guy that you've never hunted with he might be using a gun that's not his that he doesn't understand where the safety is he might not know the ethics or the the what, what's it called when you're bowling and you let the guy go to your right what's that called What's, you know, there's uh, etiquette. You might not know the etiquette of, of hunting and when to stand up and all this. There's so much that goes into it. But some of the things with blinds, cows have fallen into pit blinds. People have driven into pit blinds. I've seen hunters fall into pit blinds. You use cones, Tony. You mark them off. You make sure that people know where they're at at all times. Do you gate them off or fence them off after the hunt to where a cow can't get in there? What are some of the things that we can think of safety-wise before we get into guns to make sure that we can prevent these accidents? Before we get into guns, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of ours will uh, will pound post into the ground um you know like lead pipe pounded in the ground and then when we're done got cattle panel attached fence posts and you just come and set those set the fence post in those lead pipes that are in the ground so you've got a you know perfect fence around it at all times and uh, cattle can't get in there whatever everybody knows where it's at i never thought of cows wow Oh, I've, I've, I've had it almost double digits. I bet in the, on the front range of driving in and there's a cow in the pit and you, you got to notify the farmer. You got to get a forklift out there and try to get something wrapped around his, his belly and, and pull him up out of there. You got, and then you got the hunters that need to get to a new field. Now it's hard to prevent. There's things that can happen. Adapting is so key, but I like the idea of the metal post where you just go in there and put the stakes in and wrap the fence around to make sure that your guides don't drive into. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that happen that I've seen with pit blinds or, or, you know, blinds that stay there throughout the entire season, but gun safety. I, I mean, I've been there a hundred times where a gun falls over in a pit blind. I've seen accidents happen in ground blinds. I've seen, um, 
you know, dogs run across, you know, and knock something over, get in the way. Or I've seen it to where a guy stands up to shoot and the dog jumps out because he's breaking at the same time and hits the guy in the butt of the gun and the gun. Go There's all kinds of accidents that happen. Guys, we're dealing with a loaded weapon, multiple on any given hunt. We don't know what's going on in the other end of the blind all the time. We don't know what's going in in each separate ground blind all the time. What are some of the things we can talk about, Skip and Tony? Because I know that there's safety meetings every day before the hunt. But what are some of the things that we have to take into every hunt to be cautious about this type of thing? I mean, just a couple of things we do. I mean, you know, you've got your whatever, say your wooden board in your pit where you cut your little gun notch, you know, and you lean your gun up against it. We put little magnets in the back of all these gun notches. And they're pretty darn strong, honestly. And uh, so you put your gun up there and it just, whap. I mean, it's against that magnet. You got to pull it off there when it's time to go. So it's not going to fall over by accident. Uh, That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And then like, you know, we work with the guys at Concealed Comfort on our pits and like our custom pits they make for us where we're kind of in the center and there's no wall or anything. We'll make a little island between each person with the gun leans against it, it's got a magnet and the barrels are pointed out of the blind, not in the blind. And we don't let guys load guns in the pit. They got to have their, their gun, their barrel up out of the pit to load the gun, um, that sort of thing. And we cut everything. We don't have just a big open top in the pit. So, you know, you get a lot of pits that are, it will be a big wide open top on it. And we'll come in and then build wooden frame around that and screw it to it to where everybody has their own shooting hole. So it's going to keep guys from being here and shooting clear over the other side of the pit, ringing everybody's ears. I mean, it's going to keep them to their lane. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Oh, everybody's yeah. got their own little shooting hole. They can't overswing. Uh, Safety is just, I mean, it's, it's huge. I mean, you don't, you don't oftentimes get a second chance with a, when you're dealing with firearms. 100%. Well said, Tony. Skip, have you, with all of your travels, you hunt with a lot of quote-unquote strangers as well. You know, there's a difference between your everyday hunt group where you know the moves that they're going to make, all right? Kenny and Dolly Parton, they knew every move they are going to make on stage. Kenny get up there with, with, with Cardi B, he'd probably be like, what in the hell is going on? This is how guiding is sometimes or hunting with new people. We have to be thinking at all times because like Tony said, you don't get a second chance. And I look at it like the most important part of the hunt because I think it would ruin our hunting careers if a big mistake happened or an accident. Skip, what are your thoughts? Two thoughts. Um, Tony's idea with the magnets is freaking brilliant. Um, I love that idea because how many times have you guys been in, and I more than I could ever admit, I've been in steel pits that are sunk in the ground and you lean your ventilated rib 12 gauge up against it and it just wants to slide and see people fighting that the entire time you're in there. And that's just silly. Then you get someone walking through the entire length of the pit, right? It's a huge invitation. You've been over. To dodging blind bags and then here come the dogs right it's um it's a real concern we, we all need to be on top of as far as uh especially how guns are stored in pits i've been in layout blinds on trips with uh riders in canada and heard a, a gun go off and it's like okay who's missing a foot you know you got to be so careful layout blinds too when lifting that barrel in and out and you know do you stick the barrel out is it too shiny do you do you keep it in the pit with you you got to watch your feet um, but the biggest thing for me 
Tony and I were hunting with a guy, um, teal season in a pit surrounded by water. It was a wonderful day. We, we, we beat him up pretty good, um, with Aaron McCauley. And, uh, one of the guys had an over and under and even with 28 inch barrels, that firearm is shorter because it doesn't have the receiver, that big semi-automatic or pump action receiver, right? The, the chambers are right here by the trigger and he rung me so hard. <laughs> um, that's, that's the other big health hazard besides the danger of minding where our muzzle is and making sure our gun is never pointed at anything we don't want to shoot. Um, the other one is the hearing hazard thing. That's a serious thing. I don't mean to be a bummer here today. We're excited to talk about blinds and everything we're going to do this year. Um, but yeah, gosh, man, I got some pretty sweet tinnitus. I'm sure both of you boys do. And a lot of it is from pits. Or, pits are really special when it comes to um, the noise of a shotgun going off. <laughs> that's on a, you touched on a good one, Skip, and that's dogs. I mean, it is so ultra important to have a well-trained retriever. Like in our stilt blinds, our dogs are outside at all times. I mean, they're on remote sits. Never, we never allow a dog in a blind. But now when you get a pit blind, your dog's pretty much in there with you. But the ones we use, the dog platform sits up high off the ground. So they're on their own little, basically like a, a stand in the pit. Um, I mean, it's, not a stand but but they're up because they got to be able to see out anyway so they're mm -hmm. up high but we never ever allow a dog in the bottom of pit i mean mm -hmm. all of our dogs are our best friends but i don't give a damn i mean the dog stays on that pit and if your dog is not steady is not obedient or anything then you better have him tied up because you made a great point earlier, Tony, that, you know, you made you made reference that there's going to be different angles of the approach by birds. Some are going to work vertical. Some are going to come straight across the field in a high wind. A, 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 a breaking dog out of a pit like you're talking about and those geese are low, you know, like big honkers do. And that dog's breaking when you say get them. A lot of us, you know, don't think about when it's go time and gun time. We like, well, our What's our dog doing? That dog's right there in front of all of those muzzles. I've heard it twice in the last three seasons, this same example of dogs being in ill way because of this. A well-trained dog in the blind situation is big. There's a lot of different dog blinds out there and dog hides, but they got it. When you start talking about things like remote sits, that's crazy. Like you have to have a dog that is well-trained to go along with your concealment idea. It's very important because, <clears throat> excuse me, guys, um, I, I've become very critical because life is so precious. Tony, you have young kids. Skip, you have young kids. I have a young daughter named Alyssa. I don't want a dog knocking all the guns over in a blind. I don't want it. I want it well-behaved. The dog has to know its place. That's up to the owner, the trainer, the handler. It's our responsibility to make sure that that dog is well-trained when it comes to this concealment part of it because it can make or break the hunt. So I'm so glad you brought it up because there is, in the gear issue... We have dog blinds within the blind section. We also have a dog section in the gear issue that we'll get to on a later date, a later podcast episode. Tony, you've had great dogs. You've had unbelievable hunts. So, I mean, I'm going to say the last two decades, I've after it's been since I started watching your career through magazines, through Wildfowl, through Skip and other writers, through VHS and DVDs and, and so many awesome hunts on DUTV and you're, you've experienced it all. Skip, you've had so much fun in the duck blind, the goose blind. We say the duck blind. We say the goose blind. It's like our favorite place on earth besides maybe all around duck camp, goose camp, deer camp, turkey camp. Hunting camp is so 
special. But the blind is unbelievable for camaraderie, friendships, uh, instruction, teaching your sons and your daughters and your nieces and your nephews or your girlfriend or your wife or your boyfriend and a girl's getting her husband into this. The blind is such a special, special place. Okay. It's sentimental to be in that blind. We don't take it for granted. We're blessed to be able to be in a duck blind. That's the way that I look at this. So talking about it with two guys that have been in a lot of duck blinds, a lot of goose blinds, a lot of different situations. It's awesome. This, this, this section of this magazine is more than just pictures and what's new to the market. And there's a lot of great innovation out there. Manufacturing is at its all time best right now. Design is an innovation is so key right now, but I, I want to end this guys by how special this is. It's the freaking duck blind, man. It's different than having your back up against the tree waiting for a gobbler to fan out. Okay, it's different than being in a box blind and waiting for a 140-inch whitetail to walk out into bow range. It's different because the camaraderie, the cooking of the bacon, the biscuits and gravy, the joking, the ribbon, and then all of a sudden your dog's eyes go up and then you're like, oh, time to look up, quiet for a minute, but we're going to go right back to camaraderie once we're safe and sound. How special is it to you, Tony Vandemore, to be in a duck blind? Think about it every day. It's the best cup of coffee you're ever going to have. Oh, I like that. Skip, how special is the duck blind, goose blind? Yeah, I played a little football, played a little rugby, wrestled, ran a little track in high school, and uh, mostly hunted and was was gone all the time. I was not on the level that you guys were with sports, but I've always been intrigued and fascinated by how baseball players gravitate to waterfowling. And I don't know if it was you, Chad. I don't think it was. It was I think it was one of the dive bomb guys. Sure enough, two or three of those guys have been baseball players. There's so many baseball players in waterfowling. And um, everyone's like, well, it's the camaraderie. It's the wing shooting connection. It's the way your computer works. If you can hit a fastball, you can hit a flying teal at 70 miles an hour. There's a connection there, the way your computers work. You guys just tend to be great shots. But one of them goes, no, man, it's the dugout. That's right. The blind is the dugout. It is. It also works with their seasons, right? It's a spring season and a fall season. But, but yeah, I, I, I wish I'd ever played baseball, but I never got to be in a dugout. But I think that's as close as I'll ever come, Chad. And you, you and Tony can speak to that for sure, the dugout mentality. It is. You've never it's, been in a dugout that was quiet. I can promise you that. And there's sunflower seeds all over the place. And there's, there's <laughs> joking going on. There's bubble gum being blown up and the bubble being put on somebody's hat. Um, you know, Max Scherzer just got traded from the Nationals to the Los Angeles Dodgers, and there's a video out there of how he, you know, he walks into the dugout after he landed in Phoenix to play the Diamondbacks, and he kind of goes up and taps Turner on the ass, and and Turner's, you know, well, it could be anybody. He turns around, he's like, "Holy shit, it's Max Scherzer!" Right? Like it's that quick. It happened that fast, and they became they they they've been opponents. They've competed against each other for years, and then all of a sudden, Josh Turner turns around, not Josh Turner. Turner turns around and sees Max Scherzer and he just high fives him and hugs him like last week I you struck me out on three pitches and now I'm hugging you and that's what the duck blind is all about is like last week you were building the decoy that competed with my decoy or you're a different call manufacturer but you get in the duck blind it's the best way to become friends it's different than a round of golf it's different than a lot of things in the world in my opinion and I think that 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 analogy of the dugout is so key because it's where friendships can be formed. It's where friendships come back to life. You might not see your buddy. Tony, you have clients that you haven't seen in one year. They come back, and all of a sudden, it's like, how's your family? How's Tony doing? How's your mom? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And you're just catching up so fast because it's, the, it's that mentality. It's just the greatest 
freaking thing on earth. I'm telling you. And Tony, for you to have a family business that you get to do it every day of the season and see the food and the culinary aspect and the memories being made and the stories being told and the looks on your kids' faces. And you, by the way, some of your turkey stuff this spring was freaking badass with the turkey calling and the kids. But Skip, you're lucky because you get to go around and visit so many different people and places, old friends, new friends, new manufacturers, trailblazers, the late, great Tim Ground. Skip, you knew Tim. Tony, you knew Tim. We There's so much that goes into this lifestyle of being in that blind. And that's why I, I, I wanted to, to do this episode on this section of the 2021 Wildfowl Giant Gear issue with Tony. Skip is because he's been there, done that, and the duck blind is such a special place. We have to hide it. We have to conceal it. We have to think outside the box. We have to adapt. We have to pe- think safety first, not just for the hunters, but for the dogs like Tony Vandemore brought up. Then we can go on to the nostalgia, the sentiment, the freaking stories and the memories, the camaraderie, the friendships. This is awesome, guys. This is unbelievable that it's almost duck season. I'm getting goosebumps. Again, no pun intended. I know that Skip was about to say that, but... Thank you guys so much because it's special for me to get on here with you. And it's going to be even more special in November when I'm in that duck blind with you, Vanamore. Skip, we'll be together hopefully after some California specs. The duck and the goose blind. Guys, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Chad. Tony, it's so good to see you, man. And I got to just add, um, you haven't aged at all in the 10 years I've known you. And I attribute a lot of it to this <laughs> this duck hunting lifestyle that you say, you know, um, if you're doing what you love, then you're never working. I think that it shows on your face and in your attitude towards things. You're always a happy, laid back guy, though, very intense when it comes to the hunt. But I can't wait. Chad, thank you for hosting us. I can't wait to get my shot at being in a, in a dugout again since I never played baseball. It's going to be really exciting. I look at that, that photo on the wall behind you of those giant honkers all all angel winged out and then uh, finishing all buckled up or gorilla up, as my friends say. And uh, gosh, man, to be elbow to elbow with someone that you like and can hang out with when that is happening. It's just, it's just, there's nothing like it in sports. So that's Kansas on an edge with 30 foot trees above us in a panel blind. And those lessers are doing it just like that. Are you dead on about the Kansas, Colorado thing? Not Northern Colorado and the lessers, they hate edges, but yeah, over around the Kansas area, you're, you're right. Like that, that Dyke Levy hunt I was talking about, they'll, they'll do it. It's different. different I guess it's pressure. Tony, take us out. Give us some Habitat Flats words of wisdom. Take us out for the 2021-2022 duck and goose season and the annual giant wildfowl gear issue that you will find in every nook and cranny at the Habitat Flats Lodge in Missouri, Arkansas, Saskatchewan. The brand continues to grow. The innovation of Tony and his partners is undeniable. Book your hunt with Habitat Flats. Get your gear issue. Tony Vandemore, take us out of our blind podcast. We're almost there, boys. The wait's almost over. See, We're going to get back from that dugout like Skip said. I love it. I can't wait to be with you. This is going to be the best seasons of our lives, guys. That's, that's, that's always my outlook going on. Nothing surprises me. I love it all. The bad days, the hard days. It makes those those good days that much cooler and that much more memorable. And I'm going to end it by saying this. If anybody has the ability to get somebody new into this, 
do it. Get them in the duck blind. Get new blood into this. Safari Club International, California Waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl. Join conservation efforts. Respect the resource. Have compassion for the animals. Elbow grease, sweat equity. We all believe in it, but do we all put our money where our mouth is? I know Tony does because he's making dinner and lunch and breakfast for ducks coming down the flyway and going back up the flyway to breed like there's no tomorrow. I know Skip does because he's educating new hunters, old hunters, trailblazers, men, women, kids through his efforts, his crew's effort at Wildfowl and Intermediate and OSG Wildfowl. He's educating. Let's do our part to let this heritage, this culture, this blessing, we're not entitled to this lifestyle of being an American hunter. It's a blessing. It's a privilege. Let's do what it takes to keep new blood in it. Let's fly the flag. Let's be great stewards of the land and ambassadors of this special lifestyle. Tony Vandemore, Habitat Flats. Thank you. Skip Knowles, editor-in-chief, Wildfowl Magazine. Thank you. We got more Wildfowl giant gear issues 2021-22 season coming your way right here at the Foul Life Podcast. Tom, Jake, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life.